Up next on episode 75 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff sit down with sysadmin extraordinaire Tom Limoncelli of Everything Sysadmin to discuss IPv6, dumb things for system administrators to check, and the sysadmin community as reflected in server fault from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Our guest today is Tom Limoncelli, who is the writer of The Practice of System and Network Administration and also Time Management for System Administrators, recently out from O'Reilly, right? Is that a recent yep. book? So I haven't. I mean, I'm so behind on my reading. I, <laughs> my time the, management is... The second edition of the uh, System, System and Network Administration book is is new. It's about a year old. The time management book's about four years old. Right. That is sort of a classic old, older book. Well, not that uh, you're that old, but I mean, that's like, that book is like, the, the first one came out in, here Amazon two, says. 2001. 2001. And so there's a new, the new second edition is out. So if you have the first edition, it's all wrong. By the second edition. We made so many changes to the second edition. First of all, all the anecdotes that are about Solaris, we now say they're about Linux. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to, you know, appeal to the young crowd. Right. Does the young crowd, do they even know what Unix is? If you said that, would that just not make any sense? There wouldn't, wouldn't be <laughs> true, right. True, true. So, Joel, you should also mention that Tom wrote the complete April Fool's Day RFCs. Ah. Oh, yeah, yeah. look at that. Here it is on his website. Well, he's co-author, but... And that's more of a collection, right? Did you did yeah. you actually write April Fool's Day RFCs? I have yourself? never written an April Fool's Day RFCs. It's a collection of the RFCs that are available for free. Uh, but the book has the advantage of we um, Peter Salas and I, my co-editor, added um, some interviews and uh, historic background to some of them. And there's actually <laughs> there's three forwards to the book because we asked three famous internet luminaries. Uh, in parallel, figuring that all three of them would say no, uh, but all three of them said yes, so we published all three. Oh, does that include the famous um, TCP IP over Carrier Pigeon? Yes, and pictures of its first implementation. You know, some people in Europe. Oh yeah, that was much. Uh, that was much later, long after the RFC. I think was the first implementation. Yeah, right? almost uh, twenty years later. Yeah, like it takes a whole new generation of of computer science students. Mm-hmm. To actually try some of these crazy, crazy protocols. So that sort of disqualifies it as an April Fool's Day RFC was implemented. <laughs> well, it's been updated recently. Someone published an RFC where they implemented IPv6 over uh, social networks. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first implementation is a, uh, a Facebook plugin or app. And uh, you configure your little IPv6 router, and every time you click, you know, update, it 
sends out packets and you eventually build up a little IPv6 network. So it's, you know, for modern times, a modern protocol. You know, modern times is social networking, not carrier pigeons. And uh, the modern see. protocol. And this is interesting. Why? <laughs> right, this is because <laughs> geeks are bored and this is what we yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a lot of geeks just like implementing one thing in terms of another thing. Uh, that, that's so interesting. Right. Like IP over DNS and right. then DNS over IP over DNS. IP over DNS is actually kind of a good way to get through various firewalls that may be blocking you. Like you're in a hotel room and you haven't paid for the internet access, but DNS is still working for some reason. Yes. And recently um, some uh, malware has been using... Um, DNS as a signaling mechanism. So the key loggers uh-huh. that they're finding out there are doing, um, they're reporting back your keystrokes over DNS. They're querying for, you know, special URLs that mean this person just pressed the A key, this person just pressed the B key. Oh. And then they do another query that means, uh, should I start attacking? Right. <laughs> yeah, scary stuff. Wow. Well, the April Fool's Day RFCs go way, way back. In fact, I'm just looking here, and like the first one was uh, 1973, ARPA Walkie. <laughs> yeah. In fact, they're not all on April Fool's. Uh, back, <laughs> back in the 70s, uh, a number of uh, just poems. Vince Cerf wrote some funny things, and it got published as an RFC. And uh, yeah, Ar- ARPA Walkie, which is like the Jabberwocky poem, but it's about the ARPANET. How did RFCs, okay, so it's 1973. Obviously, they didn't put up a web page. <laughs> right. And they were, but they probably, they probably had trough in those days, right? Isn't that no. what they, they were no. all, no, this was pre-trough? Trough was part of the, uh, the new tech writer's tool bench or the writer's tool bench. That didn't come out till the 80s. So the, huh. original, the original RFCs, and, and this is what makes the book interesting, because you're, if, if you're, if you're not, uh, I don't want to guess an age. If if you're if you're young enough that a mouse was has been around as long as as you can remember, reading some of these original RFCs is really an interesting way of looking at the history of the internet. So, the original RFCs were published. Uh, they were hand typed on typewriters and oh. photocopied. In fact, the what kind of writers did you say? Type. Typewriters. Yes. <laughs> Probably by the secretaries that worked for the engineering team. I'm I'm just guessing. Uh-huh. But a uh um a lot of them didn't have original electronic versions and a number of years ago there was a big project to sort of crowdsource the process of typing in all the oldest RFCs so that we had electronic copies. Wow. Yeah. And they were probably uh, the early ones. I'm sure were are just because just just from the sheer like the, the farther back you go, the the larger the numeric distance between useful RFCs becomes. Absolutely, so I get the feeling some of the earlier ones were just sort of a lot of it was sort of like. Um, uh, did you ever read HackMem? If you went back to the days, this was an MIT bunch of bunch of AI slash computer science slash hacker ideas. No, I didn't read that. Okay. This is one of these things that never I don't I don't know if it ever got typed in or internetized but it sort of got circulated on ever increasingly bad Xerox copies from the original uh MIT paper done at the MIT artificial intelligence lab um like in the 60s and it was like look I figured out an algorithm for drawing a circle on a cathode ray tube. <laughs> right. And that was probably right. the most exciting one actually. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, there's a TED Talk from 1985 where um, Negroponte makes four predictions about the future and three of them are true. And he spends a good five minutes explaining this new concept called a mouse. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that one. But that one was sort of interesting, right? Because is that the same place as they were showing like Telnet across the country? Or there was something else. There were like three. There was, there was some kind of presentation. That wasn't Negroponte. There's one where you see them describing basically an outlining user interface where somebody's basically creating an outline in text mode, but it's an outline. Oh, right. The original Xerox Park people have a video um, of one of their original demos. Yeah. Sure. But also the RFCs that are before 1981 are particularly out of date because before 1981, the internet didn't use TCP IP. It used NCP. What? uh, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. What is this crazy talk? And, and uh, in, in fact, the way they switched was uh, Vince Cerf declared the day that they would switch, the exact date and time, and everyone was supposed to just, you know, there were only a couple dozen machines on the internet at the time. And, and it was they, the ARPANET. It wasn't the internet. It was the ARPANET. It was, right. It was still a government-funded uh, military sure. project. Yeah. And uh, he just announced that at this time, everyone was to, you know, change their software drivers and reboot their VACs or whatever was on the internet. Right. And that's when, you know, most... Companies had the one machine that was on the internet. I should, I should, uh, I should do that. That would be fun. That would be fun, Jeff. Do you think you and I could pull that off? Do what? I don't know. Like, let's say we just tell everybody that SMTP is, is turning off at midnight, insecure, <laughs> full of spam. <laughs> I'm still waiting for everybody to switch to IPv6. I'm still wondering when that's going to happen. Yeah, that seems to be kind of a casual process. Actually, Tom, yeah. maybe you would have sure. some insight here because I don't. I mean, all I know is. We, we, I deal a lot with IP addresses on uh, Stack Overflow and stuff. There's generally some, I don't want to say nefarious, but some, some unwanted things that happen with our websites. We have to run all these uh, log parsers and sort of figure out what's going on with the site. And occasionally, I, every day, sadly, I am banning IP addresses that do dumb stuff to our site. I mean, really dumb stuff. Like they'll run like Apache Bench against us, um, <laughs> which is obviously abusive. And just really dumb stuff. So I'm always banning people, but... I'm always worried that the more data we get in our system, the more I see that, you know, IPs are reused frequently, right? Like, there's just not this one-to-one map between people and IP addresses. Uh, not that there ever has been, but it's obviously the system is distant. really starting to show its age. Yeah. So, True. And, and I th- it was my understanding of IPv6 that that was one of the big goals was to get back to a world where every thing has a unique address rather than this NAT style thing where tons of people are sharing addresses all the time. Absolutely. There's, uh, you know, when I, you know, I'm, I'm only 41, um, but I keep talking about back in the old days. So um, when I first got on the internet, everyone had their own IP address and that didn't start till the mid 90s. And it was like right. this aberrant thing. You're destroying the, the end to end principle of the internet. IPv6 will bring us back to that. Um, now, when so IPv6 always been this protocol that yeah next year will be deployed and we've been saying that every year for 15 years um this year we've seen a lot of traction a lot of major websites are um either experimenting or full-on deploying it and um what a lot of sites are doing is they're really doing it at the uh the, the traffic from the user to their load balancer is IPv6, and then what their load balancer sends out uh, on the back end is IPv4, and this lets them offer IPv6 without having to t- 
totally upgrade their uh, infrastructure. So they but just it, have to it, change their load balancer in the front. In the front, right? I mean, it's it's it would be nice if it was that simple, but that's uh, <laughs> um, that's the the basics of what they're doing. So that's actually accelerating things a lot. And then um, ISPs are starting to offer it. And what what I'm seeing now is there's all these edge cases where people say, "Oh, yeah, that that would solve this one particular problem." And they implement IPv6 for it. Like uh, a lot of cable companies, they can't get enough IP addresses for every single little, you know, uh, home uh, cable box, box yeah. set-top box. Um, and in fact, I, I saw an interesting talk recently where someone was saying, if you want to do IPv6 stuff in your company, if you if you go to your CEO and say, I'm going to make everything IPv6, they're going to say, you're crazy, get out of my office. Yeah. But if you go in and say, I'm going to do this one little thing with IPv6, you'll get permission. And to do that one little thing, you'll have to do DNS. You'll have to do this. You'll have to upgrade the router firmware globally and stuff. And that one little thing, which is very understandable by everyone, can be your impetus to getting all these other departments to do their thing. And once you've done that, and you've gotten half the uh, infrastructure change that you needed, and then, then you could try a second project. And the the best example, so I'll, I'll tell you, people often say, what, why would you want IPv6? There's, um, you know, fundamentally, there's a, the reasons are so technical, it's often hard to explain. For, for, a, for an ISP, they're literally running out of IP addresses. So right. for an ISP, the business case is, we won't be able to be in business after maybe two years from now if we don't. So well, that's people have said that since the beginning of time that we're running out of IP addresses. Right, but now they have real now we statistics. Really are. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Aaron is going around saying, "Gee, it's really going to happen this time." There's a real simple solution: let people buy and sell IP addresses, and this problem disappears. Well, that's going to start. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't make IP addresses appear out of nowhere. Um, but it does. But the, but but it would. There's all kinds of people that are hoarding IP addresses. That the would, IP addresses. Yeah. That oh, yeah. They'll get rid of the hoarding, but the hoarding yeah. they think is only going to last. Um, that'll extend it another year or two. Yeah, but then there's a lot of people that could be using NATs that just aren't because it's a, you know it's annoying. And you know, for six hundred dollars, I'll I'll choke up another five IP addresses to give to some guy in Burkina <laughs> Faso that needs some IP addresses. So yeah. uh, a more uh, a better reason. Yeah. Is well, actually, I saw a great talk by I believe it was someone at Nokia. It was the Google had a IPv6 symposium and they had external speakers, and mm -hmm. the videos are available online. And the guy from and they'll correct me online if I'm wrong, I believe it was Nokia. They said that um, IPv6 makes their cell phones' battery last longer. What? Wow. So, he, yeah, it's absolutely crazy, but here's why. With IPv4, they have to send out um, – they're, they're using NAT with IPv4, so they have to send out a packet every once in a while to keep the NAT session alive. Oh. And so the antenna has to wake up, power up, send the packet, power down. With IPv6, there's no NAT. You want to send a packet? You just send the packet. Because they're keeping so, their IP address forever. They're keeping who cares? their IP address forever. Yeah. Yeah. So they actually, their business case was around battery life. And uh -huh. to a company like that, battery life is everything.
Are we going to have to write down these long hexadecimal numbers every time we want to take an idea? <laughs> yeah, the, num- the numbers are kind of scary. Like I see them like uh, Windows does some th- newer versions of Windows actually print it occasionally. I'm always like, I always do a double take when I see it. It's like having it's a like GUID. A, it's like a combination of a product key and the serial number from a Zimbabwe banknote. Yes, yeah. they're very long. I'm assuming but, there's some abbreviated way of showing it that's not quite as if, overwhelming. If there's a run of zeros, you could just do colon colon. Oh, I see. So hopefully you'll get an IP address that's like one colon colon five. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my IP address. I want that one. <laughs> so uh, the business case that I, I'm excited about, but I haven't figured out a good way of explaining it, so let me, let me give it my best shot, is um, it's really going to start a whole new line of applications that are peer-to-peer based. Now, I don't think that's going to transform you know, Joe's payroll company, but right now most peer-to-peer products are like have to do with illegal file sharing, mm-hmm. or at least that's what gets the press. Um, and I think that's because to do real peer-to-peer, you have to do crazy tricks anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so it puts, pushes you underground. But when we can do truly just think peer-to-peer from the beginning of every application development, that's going to be a whole new way of doing applications. And it's going to open up to ideas that, you know, oh, the, all those new kids will come up with. Well, isn't, so, I mean, the problem with peer-to-peer now isn't so much than that as the, I mean, although it is, is the, is the firewall, which is the, the, the point being that people are, even, even if we, we all have lots and lots of IP addresses, we're still going to want a firewall to prevent random people from connecting to us. No. On the consumer side, sure. sure. Yeah. Well, anybody. And then the peer-to-peer, the problem with peer-to-peer is that they can't connect to me because I don't want incoming connections because they're not safe. I don't know. Sure, but think about um, uh, uh, an application that everyone uses. In, it's some kind of instant message program. Mm-hmm. I've noticed the average non-technical person really thinks that those packets are going from their computer to another computer with no intervening yeah, <laughs> third party. <clears throat> you can do that if in a world without NAT. You can go directly peer-to-peer, which makes... A service like AOL Instant Messenger scale hugely better. Right. So it's really going to help. Uh, there's there's a business case. It helps your services scale better. Your interactive services scale better because it, it takes you out of the middle. You can be involved in call setup and teardown, but not all the individual packets. Right. No, that's that's true. I mean, I, like that's how BitTorrent. Skype is working for us right now. Yeah, and it, well, in some scenarios, Skype does this really adaptive algorithm. It's very clever. But I just had to um, go write down an IP address and take it down the hallway and give it to my system administrator to make sure that Skype would work. Oh, really? Wow. So one practical example is, Tom, um, and it, one that's surprising to, to gamers is there's been this long history on the on – the, and I, this is related, I swear uh, – of, of this dedicated server model in, in PC gaming, like classic games like Doom and Quake and things like that. There's always been this dedicated server model. And one thing that id Software, who wrote the, the classic first-person shooters, has announced is their next game is going to, in fact, be peer-to-peer. And this was like a hugely controversial thing within the gaming community that like, you know, how can you have good gameplay with people directly connecting to each other without some dedicated server sitting there, you know – doing nothing but serving up packets to, to everybody on the server. Um, and this game, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which just came out on the PC, 
sort of bit the bullet and was the first to actually do this. And, Wasn't there uh, kind of a lot of griping about the PC version of Call of Duty? Well, that was one of the reasons was people just don't believe that that model can work. But I think this does relate to what Tom is saying, which is sure. that and, and people like John Carmack, who's I mean, he's a friggin' genius, is saying there is no reason to have dedicated servers anymore. He's like it's basically an antiquated thing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Tom is saying too, is like you can have this peer-to-peer model and not give anything up oh, and not have a center. It's actually more flexible not to have the center. Yeah. But they're not doing um, it using IPv6, they're doing it using um whatever they call that punching punching UDP. Yeah, but it, it's it's the implementation is so much simpler. Like Tom is saying, if if everybody has unique right. address, then you don't have to do all this crazy trickery that right. they have to resort to. Now it doesn't solve the firewall problem that you're describing, uh, but certainly the coding becomes way easier. And I think it's a good practical example of what what Tom is saying, where uh, the, the networking around the edges is actually more flexible than forcing people to go through the center. So that's mm-hmm. actually progress, believe it or not. Um, and I actually have played it online. And I was I was skeptical. I was like, oh, this can't be good. You know, there's no dedicated server. Um, but I really honestly could not tell a difference. What would happen occasionally is uh, the host would disconnect from the game, mm-hmm. and then the game will pause for like five seconds while it figures out like a new host. Mm-hmm. And it has to have all these algorithms to figure out, you know, who's a good host, who has the right bandwidth, all this stuff. And um, it worked surprisingly well. So I was oh, so they, pleasantly they didn't surprised. Remove, they didn't remove the man in the middle. They made it so you, the players... Uh, some player, unbeknownst to them, volunteers to be the man in the middle. Yeah, that, yeah. that is true. Yeah. So it's, right. it's not and pure, but, it, but it's an example of, of some edge networking. That's what Skype calls a super node. Yeah. Yes. Where somebody becomes a host. Now, a related question I have for you, Tom, is, okay, so we make this transition to IPv6, and is the IP problem solved at that point, like, forever? I mean, uh, you know, forever is a long time, right? <laughs> uh <laughs> So I have um, this theory about, and let me relate this to something for you. So the 32 to 64-bit transition, um, that was a huge transition. Just looking at the, the spaces of memory that are involved and the numbers and stuff like that, you, you start to realize that I have a theory that in my lifetime, I don't know about other people's lifetime, but in my lifetime, I don't know that we'll outgrow 64-bit. Um, I don't know if that's a foolish thing to in say. In about five years, they're going to start selling these 128-bit computers. Well, and they probably us will. programmers are going to be like, there's absolutely no point. That's a big friggin' waste. <laughs> it's just a bunch of big fat zeros that you just got to ship all around on the chip. And, and Dell is going to be like, no, 128, you want the extra speed and performance and horsepower just in case. So what do you, what do you think, Tom? Do you think IPv6 in our lifetimes is going to be fine? I mean, do you think 64-bit, same thing? Do you have any theories here? Yeah, well, so the – oh, boy. Now you're, you're asking me to go into um, – Stuff that is not my expertise, but I know just enough to be dangerous because... Well, that's what this show is all about. Yes. Okay. So when but, IPv6 was first being worked out, and this was 15 years ago, I had a bunch of friends that were on some of the committees, and they used to tell me that they, uh, they didn't just plan IPv6. First, they worked out what are the requirements, and one of the requirements was, we want this to last, I think they said, 100 years. And... Um, so originally the addresses were going to be uh, 64-bit, and then and people said that would be uh, like three IP addresses for every square foot of of land on the Earth. And the people in Manhattan said, "Well, that's not enough. That's not enough for us. We have a hundred-story buildings. We have many more IP addresses per square foot." Um, that's play, Joel. Yeah, and uh, I got geez, and, I got a square so foot that's right here on my desk. The, <laughs> yeah, so they doubled it to 128. Um, 
there are actual statistics about like uh, you know, estimates of how long this should last, and this would be enough for you know an IP address for every grain of sand on the planet Earth or something. Uh, I, I think it is going to be enough for my lifetime and the lifetime of anyone born today. The, the question is, is it enough for when we develop interplanetary travel? <laughs> but luckily, there's been a lot of research into that. And if you search for DTN, uh, there's a lot of research right now because it uh, – well, the, the good news is that because of the way light travels um, – you don't actually. You can actually have an IPv6 net for each planet. You don't need to have uh, unique addresses. Oh, now you're just putting NATs at the planetary uh, gateway. Well, <laughs> that's not. Yeah, read up, read up that's on just rolling actually, back the. Uh, let, let me plug a conference back the clock just a little at, bit there. I was just at the USNICS Lisa conference, which is their big system administration conference. Mm-hmm. And if you go to uh, usnics.org, us. NIX.org um, and look at the Lisa conference proceedings. Uh, I believe they have a video of the talk about DTN, which is the protocol for shipping data around the planets. This is what NASA uses. And the problems are very difficult because if, if you're broadcasting from Mars, Mars is rotating. So when is your uh, antenna going to be broadcasting and pointed at the Earth? You get this you know, on, off, on, off kind of problem. Mm-hmm. And if if the base station halfway between Mars, you know, you go from Mars to the Mars orbiter to Earth, and you have two on-offs going on that are out of sync, and it's actually like the game Frogger. There's no point at which you can run all the way across the street. Mm-hmm. So you have to develop a store and forward mechanism. So each planet really could be an IPv6 domain, and then between the planets you use this Frogger kind of store and forward technology. It was called yeah. UUCP. It, it was called UUCP in the old days. Yeah. But now, here's the cool thing. Uh, I just read an article last week. Vint Cerf has implemented DTN for the Android phone, which means uh, for uh, Joel, you and I, we're New Yorkers. We're constantly in and out of subways where there is not uh, Wi-Fi. That's so true. So you could, even though you're traveling around New York going in and out of, of range, by the time you get home, those videos could be downloaded through the store and forward mechanisms. And So basically, and, I send a message to a bunch of people that are on the subway with me. One of them gets out at the 47, 42nd Street station. The message somehow makes it to the server, which downloads a bunch of stuff and forwards it to a whole bunch of people. One of them gets on at the 50th Street station, and I get my data, which I can then read on my way to 72nd Street. Well, or, or your your boss or whoever you're sending it to um, will have received it. At least. At least. <laughs> so so some... I don't even have, you know, this friggin' iPhone doesn't even have store and forward email like, <laughs> like all the Windows phones have had for five years. The reason this is so significant is the one thing that NASA needs is more testing on this software. And by you finding a, a use for it here on Earth, it means the, the open source implementation is going to get a lot more testing. It's like crowdsourcing the QA for NASA, and it's really going to help our interplanetary communications. All right. So send that Android phone to 55 Broadway, <laughs> 25th floor. Well, I also heard that New York, New York. NASA needs a stack exchange tool because they do Q&A. That's what I'm hearing. Oh, good. Yeah. So maybe we NASA can to stack exchange.com. 
So, so Tom, what's your opinion on uh, the the 64-bit transition? Do you also think that's going to be enough for our lifetimes in terms of memory space? Oh, no, we're always going to want more memory space. I mean, uh, I I run certain applications that need so much memory that we take, uh, you know, multiple machines and each one stores one nth of the, the... the stuff in RAM, and then we have a there's a machine in front of them that says, "Oh, that's you know." If you think about it like the alphabet, like, "Oh, that would that begins with letter P." Okay, that's the uh, that's this machine, and it sends the query. So um, instead of a load balancer, it's a traffic director. And but that's more of a limitation of the the platform, right? I mean, in right, logical right. space, you could theoretically build a machine if you had infinite money that had well, what's the so, limit? Like it's like. Ter- it's like t- a terabyte or something, isn't it? No, two to the sixty-fourth is a lot more than that. I know, but there's they they put higher limits on it. They slice it up weird. I can't remember the well, number. Well, that's the happened. trouble is that you have these large address spaces, and you always take some kind of shortcut where you just sort of leave big gaps around so that you can say, well, well left sixteen bits define what machine is going to, and then the rest of the bits are for, and then you wind up not really getting the full value. I, I think you'll start to see 128-bit CPUs when enough memory to fill up a 64-bit address space fits in a, a 5U server. I don't even, I don't even think and, a 64-bit address space. I don't know and, and that's not going to be for... How much memory has been manufactured since the beginning of the time? time? Like, how many <laughs> RAM chips do you think exist on this planet here? I, I think 64-bits could probably... Def- could, pro- could probably provide an address for every byte of RAM that has been created. Well, it's, it's actually two, two exabytes is the, the theoretical limit, just 2 to the 64th. Now, they, they do slice it up weird. I don't have that in front of me. Yeah. But they slice it in a way, kind of like they did in the 32-bit system, where you can't actually even use all the 32-bit memory. So you'd actually run into limits before that. I don't know exactly gigabyte? when, but... Um, gigabyte? I don't know. I saw it was more of, a, more of an implementation limitation. What comes after like, terabyte? Zetabyte? Uh, ex, exabyte, then zettabyte. Or yada, exa... Wait, petabyte, exabyte, yadabyte, yeah. zettabyte. Yeah, so two exabytes is two to the 64th. I mean, that's... I think what, there's a bug in Windows Calculator. So <laughs> I, I think you're, you're asking a question where the, the answer is... Um, well, the, the question's wrong. You know, we'll, 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 we will someday have 128-bit. Uh, the need for a 128-bit address space. W- the real question is when. I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime. Uh, I, I don't think it'll be in before I retire, so I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the 64-bit transition was something I was really looking forward to just because 32-bit is pretty small. I mean, in the big scheme of things. It, I mean, I know it, it was always, 32-bit was plenty until you started using lots of virtual machines and every virtual machine wanted to, to pin down its own couple of gig that's when yeah. i sort of that's why i sort of appreciate the 64-bit desktops you're sort of asking is 64 or 640k going to be enough <laughs> yeah well, but it's like right it's like it's like that's enough for every okay. it's, it's a huge number it's it's a scary large number. That's why I mentioned it. But I think it's more of an implementation detail that, that you, as you mentioned, like it'll be a long time before we get machines that actually can implement anything close to that anyway. So in, in practical near term, uh, you're going to have to have code that runs on multiple servers, obviously, to to create this huge, you know, fake 
memory address space. I mean, that's that's the more yeah. practical implementa- implementation detail that you're mentioning. Hey, we yeah. should. And, um, and yeah. You'll need new memory uh, uh, memory bus structures and all that kind of stuff, also. Yeah. Anyway, this is not the usual kind of system administration I talk about. No, yeah, well, let's talk about something you usually talk about. Well, let's talk about the list of dumb things to check. Oh, yeah, that was a good thing. That was on... Oh. Where was that? That's... Yeah, um, actually, I yeah, found I this from Joel. That on my I, main... I guess Joel was, was researching you because I had mentioned to Joel that you'd be on, and all of a sudden I saw on Joel's Twitter this, here's a list of dumb things to check. I was like, oh, it's from Tom. <laughs> so oh, yeah. this is at... Yeah. What exit.org, which is uh, Tom's website. Uh, it's under... my personal website, but I'll, I'll link to it from um, everythingsysadmin.com. Or, d- yeah, .com, which is really my main sysadmin website. Um, yeah, so this list started years ago when um, me and somebody, I think... Wait, wait. Does somebody have a cell is, phone like nearby? Tom, do you have a cell phone oh, nearby? That might have been me. Yep. Okay. That's where that, that's where that buzzing that is away. coming from. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's let's talk so, about a list so, of dumb things to check. Yeah, so years ago I spent half a day debugging a problem that turned out to be an invisible uh control M at the end of every line in a text file. This was a, a Unix file which has different oh, It was basically a DOS it was the DOS format using Someone DOS line edited endings. edited a file using a DOS editor, it introduced all these uh DOS style line endings. Yeah. And um you know, boy, were we embarrassed. And I said, man, there should be a list of dumb things to check so that when you're really stumped, you can, you know, check this list and just start going through it. So the list is now up to uh, 36 different things. Number 36 is, did you remember to check this? List? <laughs> so that's sort of meta. Um, so we got a bunch here, like, uh, can you get to the, uh, make sure caps lock is off. Does the text file end with a new line? That one actually reminds me of uh, make which distinguishes in make files between tabs and eight spaces, which you, of course, can't yes. see. And they do different things in make. Um, boy, I spent six months on that. I recently, you know, I, I now, well, I recently met the original creator of make, and I really wanted to um, <laughs> say something mean about that. But, you know, the, the person's, uh, you know, that was three careers ago for him. And anyway... Um, why, why would you ever yeah. use eight spaces? I mean, that would be wasting seven bytes, which is a quarter of all your free memory. So hey. <laughs> that was, that was just not a problem in those days. Yeah. Um, is the screen paused by control S? I like that one. Uh, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I guess that yeah. still happens, huh? Mm-hmm. The Exonix off protocol from, from dumb terminals from 1906 that, that, that were, they, they had to be printing terminals. Otherwise, they wouldn't have this issue of not being able to keep up, right? So it had to be right. a, a, a teletype, literally a teletype. I like to use cut and paste to copy the variable rather than typing it. <laughs> yeah, I've done that before too. Or come yeah. a man line, <laughs> right, right, right. Because somebody's there's a typo that you can't even see, like a, like a it's it's, it's a modem yep. instead of modern or whatever, the R and M thing. Yeah, and certain fonts make that really challenging. Yeah, you have certain characters that are almost literally indistinguishable on the screen. Yeah. Yeah, when is... IBM took the slash out of the zero, I thought we were doomed. <laughs> <laughs> but you could still, there was the fat zero and the skinny zero. But not everybody knows that. So, You know, Tom, when I first read this, I thought this was a joke. And then as I got into it, I was like, oh, this is actually serious. <laughs> this is actually something you want to do. <laughs> these all are actually these are... real dumb things to check. <laughs> all of these are on the list for a reason. Yep, the rogue DHCP server. Yep, yep. I've had all, I think I pretty much had every single one of these things happen. 
Maybe not in this order. Like I would probably put the file permissions up at the top. Yeah, this could use a uh, in terms a bit of, of priority of, of like how likely is it. Uh, cool. All right. Yeah. Great list. Um, do you want to do a listener question? We haven't talked about Stack Overflow at all. We should talk about Server oh. Fault. What's going on with Server Fault? Uh, we haven't talked about Server Fault. So with Server Fault, we're actually looking at uh, one of the controversial things on on Server Fault, and it's just it's not really controversial. It's just the nature of the beast. Is we try to scope the content. One of the one of the challenges in setting up uh, st- sites that run on the Stack Overflow engine is that fundamentally they're they're question and answer sites, right? So the way you determine the nature of the community is you set boundaries on the questions. And if you don't do it right, I, I believe very strongly that you kind of destroy the community. If, if, if your boundaries are anything goes, then you'll get nothing oh, of, of, of utility. Yeah. Uh, so there have to be pretty strict boundaries in the questions. And some people just object to this. They're like, how can you put boundaries? I should be able to ask anything. And they just don't get it. They don't understand that they're asking you to destroy the universe. Um, at least the community that you're trying to build. So uh, this just came up again the other day, but w- the way we look at this is, is Server Fault is a site for system administrators and IT professionals. Um, so questions should generally relate to servers. That's my broad rule. And like any other rule involving people and communication, there's a huge gray area, right? I mean, there, there are questions you can ask here that may or may not fit exactly, but are probably okay. Um, and you're also dealing with the type of people that, uh, you know, like to have these really strict rules. So, you know, you can't really satisfy them with these 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 gray areas that you're giving them. Um, but and I think system, and maybe Tom, you can help out here. I, I think the system administrator world encompasses several different universes. That's one of the challenges of that world. I mean, you have networking experts, you have security experts, you have you know people that that manage servers. You have also have people that manage desktops. That's le- that's I think legitimate system administration. You know, they're, they're administering machines that they are responsible for. Um, mm. And maybe the other broad guideline I would come out of this is okay. It should be generally server related, hopefully. And then B, it shouldn't be a machine that you personally bought. Like, I, I, I mean, because I like to draw this line. It's like, okay, if you paid money for that, in general, it's probably not a good fit for, for server fault because it's not like your professional job to, to manage that machine. It's just something you do uh, for fun. And then again, there's a gray area there. Right. But I don't know, Tom, how, how would you define the sysadmin universe in, in, in that way? In what terms, like what questions are you allowed to ask in the sysadmin universe? Well, that's... Good question. So I I would make an exception if it's a server you bought for yourself um, and you're using it in some kind of uh, you know, simulated production environment or even production environment. System administration, I, I think of it not just as a job but as a culture or a lifestyle. I mean, if you're a brain surgeon, well, let me give you a better example. If you're a system and it's very typical that you might – for enjoyment, spend the weekend trying something new with a server that you bought and yeah. then taking that knowledge and bringing it to work. You might build a, be building some kind of weird home network that does things. Right. And what you learned, you transfer to work. Now, a brain surgeon doesn't do that. You do not want a brain surgeon to say, hey, this weekend I was doing experiments on my cat and I'm, I learned something new and I'm going to try it on patients today. <laughs> uh, um, if only brain surgeons. So, um, yeah, so <laughs> let's see. that's a good question. I, I would say, 
I, I would say you have good criteria there, but I would make an exception for home projects if if you're trying to build, uh, if you're trying to if you're trying to self educate, and, it's, and it's, the other yeah. the other categories, of course, there's tons of non technical questions, what I call soft issues, like how do I deal with a angry uh, user? How do I convince non-technical management to spend money on a technical project? These are incredibly important in system administration. There's uh, sociologists uh, refer to certain fields as information brokers. And these are the people that are um, like a nurse is an information broker. They deal directly with the patients, which do not understand medicine and doctors who presumably do understand medicine. And there's this incredible disalignment. If you think about it, when the head of a hospital is making an important policy decision, they talk to doctors, they talk to everyone in the hospital except the nurses. When, if you think about it, it's the information broker who you really want input on the big decisions. And this disalignment explains the, the common sysadmin complaint that they are uh, given responsibility without authority. Yeah, and, because people just design things and they come up with these big complicated plans and then they tell the system administrators at the last minute, oh, by the way, next week we're going to need to be running this new software that does such and such. Yeah. So I'm going to need, I, you know, 24 servers. And I met someone recently who said that he was told in two weeks they're moving to a different building and you have two weeks to plan to move the data center. Mm-hmm. And he said, you've been planning this for six months. You just thought to tell the IT people, oh, well, how difficult is it to move, you know, 10 racks of machines? <laughs> well, let me tell you. Yeah. Shouldn't be so, that hard. I mean, all you do, first of all, you, you need one of those little portable power packs that can power them while they're moving. And you get one of those little Wi-Fi routers, those little pocket Wi-Fi routers that they can all stay on the internet while they're moving. Right. And you just wheel them across Manhattan. You put them on UPSs. And right, you put them on a couple hour of UPSs. You need a UPS that'll last an hour and two minutes. Actually, <laughs> uh, if, if I can mention, the, uh, the practice of system and network administration has mm-hmm. a, a chapter of lists. And one of the lists is things to consider when you're moving your data center. Mm-hmm. And it um, has a, a lot of really great lists from people that have uh, who have been there. And, uh, it, it seems like at a, at a certain point, like, I, like I've, I've been involved in some smaller moves, and it usually just ends up being, let's build a new data center over there that does all the same things as this one. And you use it as an opportunity to decommission old servers that are doing stuff that you don't need anymore, maybe to do some server consolidation. You basically just start building a new data center, and you bring up the services one by one. Yeah, you definitely want to build at least the minimal infrastructure. Start a new, you know, your DNS, DHCP, those kind of minimal infrastructure. Get that up and running. And in fact, you, it's very important. Tell your boss, we are not putting a single machine into the moving truck until the stuff on the other end is up and running. Because right. I've seen people who have said, well, we'll get the internet connection up while the stuff is in transit. Oh, no. <laughs> the ISP has some problem. They say it's going to sure. take week or a month or a year and you're right. screwed. Or you get there, there's not enough power on the racks for all the boxes you need to put on. Right. Because they gave you 10 amps per per rack. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that but that, that doesn't scale, I don't think. I mean, I can imagine that if you actually had to move 10 racks, that, that the idea that you would actually be reconstructing these servers in, in a new way would just become not manageable at some point. It's just going to take six years to do it if you want to do it that way. You really just have to 
physically move everything and reconstruct it in the new place. Mm -hmm. So, Tom, one thing that we also noticed was that uh, Joel and I started Stack Overflow, which is for programmers. And, you know, Joel and I being, you know, heavily immersed in the, the world of programmers, um, obviously knew it intimately in terms of who the principals are and, you know, what the community is like and so forth. And one thing that really struck me was once you move from the programmer universe to the, the universe of system administrators, there's just not as many people like you, for example, like, like outspoken, like the Joel of, of system administration is, is very difficult to pin down. It's a community that seems to be much more fragmented. And also the, the people in it are much less vocal. Like you can barely click a link on the internet without getting on some programmer's blog somewhere. Right. Like yeah. Programmers love to tell you all about themselves. <laughs> I mean, Joel and I are good examples, right? Like, <laughs> oh, we just love, let me tell and you about this, all about how the world works, right? <laughs> and you don't see that as much in the system administrator community. They, they, they tend to be quieter and like harder to find, in, in my experience. That was the big challenge, because I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just find the Joel Spolsky of the system in world, and I'll contact him and get advice on how we should do this. And that turned out to be disturbingly difficult. Um, I think you're the closest we've actually come to that and I wonder if you had any thoughts on like why there is that disparity. Yeah, I, that's a, um, a a cultural problem that I've identified, and uh, a number of people have. There's some great uh, pockets of system and community, like uh, LOPSA, the League of Professional System Administrators, and uh, Sage, which is a a, a Usenix sub-organization. And in fact, the, the Lisa community for the last 23 years has really been that touchstone that once a year everyone gets together and talks about the real cutting edge system administration stuff. It's very Unix-centric, Unix, Linux, open source-centric. They're trying to reach out, both of these organizations are trying to reach out to the, um, the, the Windows world the Windows world is even uh, weirder because they have, instead of making their own conference, they just go to TechEd and sit there slack-jawed and, you know, feed whatever the mothership is broadcasting that week. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, – uh, the vacuum is being filled by all these vendor-specific things. You can always get, you know, vendor-specific certifications and education and training, but there isn't much um, vendor-neutral and soft-topic stuff. In In fact, one of the – I don't know. One one of the things that I was very um, adamant about at the Lisa conferences um, was that they needed to do more soft topic kind of topics. And and when I started participating, um, there was very little. Now there's a lot of soft topics kind of papers and uh, and talks. And I think it's really broadened the group. How big and, are those conferences, like Lisa? Lisa, um, well, during the dot com boom. It was up to like uh, 2,500. Now it's more like 1,000. Mm. Um, but this year, you know, with the recession, it's quite small. Um, there are a lot, of, um, a lot of Linux user groups, lugs, all over the country that are 80% sysadmins. Mm -hmm. um, also, I'm, I'm noticing that more and more programmers are given system administration responsibilities, it usually starts in the terms of release engineering. You take one programmer and say, you're in charge of rolling this out to the website every time we ship a new binary. And they start doing more and more um, system in work scaling, figuring out how to make 
you know, more queries per second happen on the hardware they have. It or, also happens in the uh, the small startups, which have two or three people, like Stack Overflow. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. just sort of wind up with the programmer doing system administration. That was definitely the seed audience, although I, I did want to broaden it. And I think you highlight a good point, which is when Joel and I created Stack Overflow, that was actually, you have the same problem to a, to a less severe degree in programming where you have sort of the Ruby programmers that hate the Microsoft programmers that hate the Perl programmers. And you have these weird silos where, you know, and Joel and I felt like sort of the best programmers sort of transcended these silos. And we were trying to encourage people to sort of rub shoulders with other programmers that, that work in different languages because it's, it's all programming fundamentally. I mean, there's things you have in common with these people and you can learn from each other. Um, that was always an explicit, well, we were trying to sort of convince people to do it accidentally sometimes by the nature of the way the site is designed. And I, I agree that server, you know, sysadmins tend to be, I think, even more heavily siloed. And I think that's also an explicit goal is, you know, to have the Linux guys next to the Windows guys. And, I mean, certainly networking, good Lord. I mean, that's pretty much the same on most platforms, right? I mean, once you get outside right. of the, the platform-specific stuff, I mean, networking is just networking. Um, so you'd have that but, in common. But then you get into so silos, yeah, the Cisco silos and the Juniper silos. Oh, that's true. So, yeah, so it's, when, it's a real when, problem there. I would love to I, try to work with you on, you know, at least work with the community with, with Serverfault and try to bring that together a little more. Sure, sure. When, uh, when Christine Hogan and I first started working on our first book, The, the Practice of System and Network Administration, we... Um, uh, we told a lot of people what we were planning on doing, and we got this visceral, visceral reaction with people saying, it can't be done. You can't write a vendor-neutral system administration book. And we would give examples like, um, well, you know, PC deployment, it doesn't matter what operating system you're deploying, there's certain fundamentals that you have to get right or people are going to be pissed off. And that didn't always convince people. And um, I think the best example was we would explain that we're going to do our, our chapter on backups is going to be different than any other system in book. Um, most system in books say, how do you do backups? You type this command. Well, our chapter is going to say, how do you do backups? Well, there's three kinds. There's three reasons you do backups. And there's for each of those reasons, there's two general ways of doing backups and here's how you fund it. And here's how you plan this and the media and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the last thing the chapter is going to say is, Oh, and you're going to have to type command to do the backup. That's in some other book. <laughs> yeah, or you can figure that out anyway. You, don't you, you can figure that. that out. You know how to read the documentation. Yeah. Exactly. And that's great. And that's what made people uh, really attracted to the book. And I, I'm really proud of that in the, the second edition, uh, which we, we added uh, Strata Chalup helped us with the second edition. Um, the time management book, it's, I got the opposite reaction when people heard about uh, the proposal for that. The, the first book, everyone said it can't be done. The the time management book, everyone was like, oh my God, could you get this book out faster because I'm I'm drowning. <laughs> time management for systems, system administrators by O'Reilly yeah. and O'Reilly uh, is the publisher. Yeah, uh, and O'Reilly really saw the vision and uh, and really it's it's a self help book. It's a it's a self help book for geeks that are drowning. Um, you want to take a listen well, to question? That sounds like it might even be broader than system administrators even. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of programmers read it. In fact, um, I, if I had an additional month, I would have uh, added a little bit more for programmers and uh, 
maybe change the title, but O'Reilly said that I couldn't have an extra month because a, a book on time management should not be a month late. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad precedent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Joel, go to the question. We have a question. Listener question. Hey, guys. This is uh, Thomas Arnold from Houston. Uh, my question for you for this week is, um, what do you think is the feasibility of hosting a new uh, web application using the Microsoft stack? Um, and what are your thoughts as far as scalability, performance, cost, and everything that goes along with that um, versus using an open source um, like MySQL and PHP and everything? Thanks. That was kind of broad and vague. It, it is. But, uh, you know, coming from the Microsoft side, I have to say I have very mixed feelings because I, I, I do, I, I really dislike licensing. I, I feel like licensing is, is part of my, it's just a pain in my ass, frankly. It's like just it's something I don't want to think about. And, and I, I know it's part of their business model, and, and I respect that. <laughs> it's, it's more than part of their business model. But on the other hand, yeah, the the lack of friction from just okay, I'll just download this and run it and just go right versus you know what edition do I want, what options do I want, and this gets really hard on the server thing because that's where people start to make real money. That's so where they they're starting really to divide weird. up between the oh, if you need that feature of SQL Server, it's fifty thousand instead of five thousand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This 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 software toggle, this this bit in memory is going to cost you fifty grand, and I I have a little bit of a problem with that. Um, it, it, partly because it's a lot of money for some of this enterprisey stuff. They start to charge like real serious money. Yeah. You know, this is not cheap. And then uh, you just sort of feel like you're being gypped at some level. And then I have more important things I want to worry about, like solving my problems. Like licensing isn't a problem that it's not a problem I'm trying to solve. It's just something you put in front of me, like a flaming hoop I have to jump through. Just to try, try to agree with you, I, I, every time I'm sitting there saying, all right, I don't even care about the money at this point. Just give me whatever version of Microsoft SQL Server I need. Yes. And you get to some web page, which is like the Microsoft SQL Server licensing compendium. Oh, and it's God. pages and pages and pages. And there's obviously a team of people at Microsoft that sit around and, and invent this complicated system for the different ways you can license it. And they think it's very important. <laughs> to, and I couldn't care less. You know, I yeah. just don't want to be – I don't want them determining that I spend time on, on this crazy decision between the different – anyway – so I think the, the lesson that's, for that's me... That's one issue, yeah. And, and we'll have Tom chime in, because I know Tom works mostly on the open source side, so he can uh, comment mm -hmm. on that. But um, it, it's Microsoft's job, or whoever, any vendor, not even Microsoft, whatever vendor it is that's charging money for a non-open source project, uh, a product, um, it's their job to be better than the open source version. I mean, if you can't be better than the version that costs nothing, then you're failing in, in a huge way. And I think the scary thing for Microsoft is that the open source stuff... On some level, I think it's almost like dinosaurs versus mammals. Like, I think they're on different evolutionary paths, fundamentally. <laughs> well, but wait a minute. Okay, now I will say, having, having, having griped about the licensing issues, I will say that I can give you sort of, like, not just anecdotal data of I, this happened to me and that happened to me, but I can give you kind of a large-scale statistical data, which is that we make a product that is available for both Linux and Windows. Yes. And about 75%, 80% of our customers opt for Windows, and well over, so you might expect that of our tech support calls, most of them would be from Windows because that's where most of our customers are. And it's a server product. But, mm -hmm. but actually, most of our problems are, are on Linux. And actually, easily 80% of our, of, our, of our tech support is spent dealing with Linux. And so empirically, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go as far as to say it is just harder to administer 
a Linux server. And I know that the people that have done this don't don't believe me, but empirically, if you consider all the kind of people that are trying to run a server, usually, some, you know, somebody that's, we're not talking about like real system administrators, sorry, no offense, but, um, you know. Average. Professional system administrators, but the average person running a server in a shop is just going to have much more trouble getting something installed and running on Linux than they would uh, on Windows. Just because Windows is so full of like little dialog boxes that you open up and you see the choices and you check them. And then the equivalent on Linux is to, you know, read through FAQs and try to find the command line argument. And then you discover that that command line argument was added later and you got to download the latest version of the thing and rebuild it in some directory and you don't know where the source code is. And that stuff just sort of adds up to a lot of friction, especially for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Well, that's that's good because that means from a competitive landscape uh, orientation, they're, they're actually doing the right thing. In other words, they're 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 worth the money that you're paying because the server licenses yeah. aren't that expensive. It's just what I object to is they make it complicated. Just give me a flat rate, let me pay it, and just be done. Yeah, and that's where I think they fail. And as long as like you and you you have real practical right. evidence from your product that you sell, so that means it's working. Um, so that's great. But so so now that we had our long winded Tom, I'm sure you have an opinion on this. Sure. Um, well, let me address what you said, Jeff. I I agree that. Um, well, first of all, it's it's about the right tool for the right situation. And Microsoft does do a really good job of having um, a system that is is turnkey and uh, with less training, you can get more done. I think the question... Sorry, there's noise in, in the background. I don't know if you can hear it. Uh, but the question was about which stack should I use if I'm going to scale? Hmm. And I'm not sure what scale means different things to different people. So is it, um, if, if you need one box, every stack is going to be fine. If you're dealing with, uh, hundreds of queries per second, QPS, um, if you're a small shop, um, well, in, in my experience, I mean, just personally with the, the defaults, um, I can get Apache to, to scale better than IIS um, but then there's the next level of scale, and, and I'm not sure what level the user was talking about, but at, at the next level, I think, you know, Apache, uh, scales really great, but at the, the next level, mm-hmm. you, you go custom. The answer is none of the above. If you right. look at the, the companies that scale to just levels, yeah, hundred thousand, or just uh, you know thousands or hundred thousand QPS. They all have their own uh, web server. They do really Yahoo. Yeah. Well, Microsoft has their own, but they also sell it to you. So they're they're probably using off the shelf. Um, Facebook, Google, uh-huh. um, they've written their own. Right. Well, now, I think one thing you just to feed into this real briefly, Tom. Um, mm-hmm. One thing you have to look at too, and this goes back to a programming example, there's always value in moving with where the community is going. In other words, you want to pick a really vibrant community to move in because whatever you're doing, someone else has probably already done it and you can sort of learn from them and just follow their pattern. Um, and, and certainly the impression I get on the, the public internet is there's there's more large companies using non-Microsoft stacks on the public internet yeah. uh, than there are using Microsoft stacks. So that uh, sort of lot. tells you something. Yeah. yeah. Right. By a lot. I mean, the fact that they trot us out Stack Overflow as the example of a successful ASP.NET MVC application every single time, because nobody else is even close. 
right, like to if, our if, little site in terms of the size of an ASP.NET MVC deployment. Right. If you break it to small, medium, large, very large, the small, anything's going to be good. The very yep. large, you go custom. So what about the, the medium and the large? I think um, the medium and the large, uh, the medium you could probably do with either. The large, it also doesn't matter what you're using. What matters is that you've hired a different caliber of sysadmin to scale, someone who is mm -hmm. just plain an expert in scaling. And my experience is the majority of those people are going to have a, a Unix background. Yeah, and they may, and for them, it doesn't, there isn't an issue of like how hard it is to find the checkbox because they're writing scripts anyway because they need to do this on 3,000 servers in one afternoon. Right, and they're, they're instrumenting things such that they can collect data and make data-driven decisions, not guesses. Mm -hmm. And then the other terms of scalability I would talk about is, is cost scalability. Now, we all know that Moore's Law is trending hardware so that it's, it's trending towards zero. It, hardware is trending towards almost free. Right. And then you need software where open source is making the cost of software trending towards tr free. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got those two things going for you, all that's left is power and rent. So buy your space, don't rent, and start putting your data center where you can get the cheapest electricity. Now, if that one component, the software component, you're not taking advantage of open source, you're going with commercial software, then you're going to be behind the curve of everyone who did go the open source route. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's my very business case kind of uh, reason for if you're going to scale, scale with open source. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly, we, we, we noticed that uh, a lot of the, uh, the the web stacks, the open source web stacks that scale, um, servers are so cheap. It's ridiculous how cheap and how awesome servers are. I mean, just even for commodity stuff that you would buy from Dell, they're, they're amazing, right? The new Intel chips, the tons of memory. Um, so you can just throw hardware at these problems. And it's incredibly cost effective to throw hardware at these problems. Like, I think Facebook... Uh, and I mentioned this on the last uh, the podcast, but I think it's it's worth mentioning. So that you know, PHP was ten times slower than sort yeah. of Java and C sharp, but it didn't matter. And well, I think this is us. one of the reasons why, because they they're like you know, to heck with it. You know, the expensive resources, the programmers' bodies that we pay for. No, but I mean, Jeff, you got two servers there. If you were running PHP, you'd have twenty. Oh, there's no question that if we were running PHP, it would be many more servers than we have now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think if but this, I, we're going the custom route. This is what Tom is talking about. We 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 said from the start we're going to build everything custom. You know, this is my mantra. It's like I'm going to control every part of the stack. I'm going to do everything. Well, I mean, it's still an off-the-shelf Windows server. It's not. It it's is, not but like we're we're on. experts at dealing with it. You know, right. like we're experts at setting it up, configuring it, like thinking about it. Like we write the code, we tailor the code to the platform. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas with PHP, you just build some off-the-shelf thing, some open-source thing, and just like throw tons of hardware at it. Um, and even companies like, you know, Facebook and, you know, that's an extreme example, but even the smaller companies are using like, you know, memcached and solutions that other people have built ahead of them to make this easier for the people, you know, following their trail of breadcrumbs and trying to also scale their websites. Like if we were, you know, we would probably be using memcached if, if we were on a Linux stack, honestly, by now. Right. I, I don't think a commercial company could make money selling a super high performance web server because the market... You know, there's 10 customers that would buy from you, and you can't build a company that has 10 customers. There is uh, the company that, uh, that, that is strangely associated with Google, uh, Racks, what's it called? Not Rackspace, Rack, Rackable Systems. I think they're more aligned with Microsoft. Really? 
sneaky. I thought it was some Google guy that built a bunch of. It's all very secretive. I don't know anything about it. There really? was a, there I get was, press releases from them all the time. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought Rackable was sort of an early Google employee slash slash contractor who they had building kind of the early high density racks that they used, and they I guess they never really brought him on as an employee, and he had his own kind of startup that he called uh, Rackable, and he made these you know, basically super high density racks, which he then marketed to other companies that had very, very high. But again, that is, that is sort of a very, very... That's possible. I I don't know that historic detail. I I do know that when Microsoft, uh, a year or two ago, when they talked about their um, container-based data centers, they said that they were partner with, I thought it was Rack... Rack Except it's weird because they don't actually have the domain Rackable. It's all very... Rackable is SGI now. They bought SGI. Oh, yeah, That's look at weird. that. No, the other way around. SGI. Rackable no. bought SGI. Yes, that's what I said. <laughs> Rackable Did bought I not SGI. Say that? that was just, just, to be, just to amuse themselves and change their name. Okay. Um, quick question. While we're on the server system administrator server fault uh, kick. Yes. Uh, uh, Jeff, people have asked me, are we going to have uh, careers.serverfault.com? Uh, we are. Um, we are. It's just, it's a, we're struggling to get the, the Stack Overflow part built. But okay. yes, we do plan to extend it. And I would recommend that people that are interested go ahead and sign up, at the, particularly the introductory rates, because that will cover you across the different domain names. Oh, well, okay. So yeah, if they want to get in on the $29 deal Yes, that we're definitely do that, because we are going to extend it. It's just it's we got to do it in a certain order. Does the, there's something weird there. It has to be two different sites, right? Because of the keywords not overlapping? Yeah, they need or to be different sites site. for a yeah. variety of reasons. Okay. To make that happen, we're not there yet. But we um, will be. Careers. Okay, so careers.serverfault.com coming soon. Coming soon. Careers.stackoverflow.com. How's that going? That's that's really soon now. Yes. We're we're onboarding the employers now okay. in a very beta-ish way. I like onboarding. Onboard, yes. guys. That's right. And uh so yeah, we're getting good feedback and uh yeah, we're rolling out. By the end of the week it should be basically functional. For, for them, they'll be able to actually extend offers to people and actually reach out and touch the people on the CB side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's where we are. Awesome. Well, we're sort of out of time. Yes. Shall I wrap it up? Sure. Absolutely. You have been listening to the voice of uh, Server Vault, otherwise known as the Server Vault podcast. If you're in, if you have a question for the Server Vault podcast, call the Stack Overflow hotline. <laughs> 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 which is 646-826-3879 or email podcast at stackoverflow.com. What happens if they email podcast at serverfault.com? Uh, probably bounced email. Yeah. Don't even want to think about that. <laughs> See, the trouble, that's that trouble with serverfault is they're like sort of second-class citizens there. No that's wonder they not feel true. So left out. That is not true. They don't have it's their own bit, podcast hotline. The, the parent corporation is Stack Overflow, though. At some level, like we're not going to have a serverfault blog probably just because it's a lot of work. I mean, I would... <laughs> to build it. You'd have to blog something. Yeah. Okay. So the parent corporation is Stack Overflow. Yeah. It's just a name thing. Right. St- Ac- Stack Overflow. Acme. Includes. We'll rename it to Acme Industries. Acme Industries. And um, um, uh, so those are the phone numbers uh, to call if you have a question, something you want us to discuss on a future show. There's also uh, a transcript wiki where volunteers from around the world transcribe the various things that we've said for the benefits of the hearing impaired and anybody that just wants to read this instead of listening to it. And that happens all at the transcript wiki, which is linked to from the show notes. And the show notes 
um, describe all the things that we mentioned in the show, and we'll have URLs and links and stuff like that to all the various important stuff that we talked about, so you can read on further. And that's located at blog.stackoverflow.com. What happens if you go to blog. Never mind. We just we just we just did that. <laughs> we already had this discussion. So anyway, thanks, Tom, for being on. Hey, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, Tom, where do people go if they wanna if they wanna see your list of books and read your blog and read up on you? They would go to everythingsysadmin.com. Everythingsysadmin.com. And uh, thank you very much, and see you next week. See you next week. Google is often, you know, everyone says they're so secretive, but we just published this 100-page book called Warehouse Scale Computing, and it really explains so much about how we do data centers and how what we're doing is, it's, it's almost not comparable to, I, I almost don't call it system administration because it's this whole new way of looking at computers. When you look at a warehouse of computers as one big machine, you don't think in terms of things like you used to. I mean, the, the network becomes more like a bus that is just connecting your CPUs. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is... Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.